I can't tell if this is offensive, if I need to cut this out or not. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no good is going to come of this episode. <laughs> I guess you're like, we, would, we were going to do an episode on hypernatremia. We just decided to skip the whole thing. <laughs> the Curb Science Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only. And the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the more that you use the statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those, it should not be interpreted to reflect the official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like more hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much we are responsible if you should always do your own homework and let's know the world. Well, hi, and welcome back to the Curbsiders. Hi, Stuart. I can't hey, believe you started the show. I know. I was trying to see if I could. Uh, You're get you actually going moving us along instead of I know, slowing isn't that us amazing? down. <laughs> it's because it's super late. It is super late. So I should mention that this show is going to be about hypernatremia. We have our our chief of Cashlack, Joel Topf. Uh, we are all quite delirious right now. We just had a really great show with Joel Topf. Yeah. I will remind the audience that on this show. We curbside the experts to bring them clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And in the air of full disclosure, we do spend about 10 minutes up front talking about things just outside the world of medicine that kind of make us it. human. Just skip it. <laughs> and Paul would always like to remind you that if you do skip that part, uh, you're probably a bad person. I, I won't blame you this time. And now yeah. I will and now I will introduce our wonderful returning guest host. Hannah R. Abrams, uh, soon to be Dr. Hannah R. Abrams in just a couple more months here. You hear that? That's me knocking on wood. But uh, <laughs> yes, tonight we covered a whole lot of ground in terms of hyper hypernatremia. We learned about diagnosis, differentiating um, peripheral from central DI, um, treatment of hypernatremia, and some of kind of the newer evidence about that. Um, we just learned quite a bit from Dr. Toff. Hannah, did you want to read his bio? Yeah, who is Dr. Toff? Dr. Toff is a regular on the curbsider. So this is his 11th appearance. Uh, and I actually had to go through and count them all up. Uh, and that's why he's the chief of nephrology at Cashlack Memorial Hospital. He is better known as his much cooler and more intelligent online alter ego at kidney underscore boy, where he employs innovative medical education to teach nephrology. He is the co-creator of NefJC and Nef Madness, and in 2017, he won the Robert Nairns Award from the ASN. His day job is as a clinical nephrologist at a teaching hospital, where he teaches medical students from Oakland University, William Beaumont School of Medicine, Wayne State University, St. George's, and Central Michigan University. He also teaches residents and nephrology fellows at St. John's Ascension in Detroit. All right, so I think we were going to have a pun here, and then we decided, nah. We already used that one. Oh, no. That was like the hyponatremia <laughs> one. Oh, my gosh. Jeez. That's a horrible pun. I'm, I'm learning that Stuart doesn't like other people's puns, only his own. <laughs> <laughs> really That's probably true. <laughs> Joel, it's it's so great to have you back. You are our, wow. chief, our chief of nephrology, and I'm told this is your 11th appearance. I am honored to be back. I'm excited to, to be here. I really appreciate the invitation. It is the 11th hour. <laughs> okay, Stuart. I'm just going to blow by that. Uh, Joel, did you want to, any updates that you wanted to give the audience? Uh, I heard maybe you have a podcast now that they might be interested in. 
Well, I'm not, I'm not sure if they'll be interested in it, but we've, uh, uh, the Nef, <laughs> the NefJC crew has started doing a, a podcast. It's called Freely Filtered. And, uh, we essentially take, uh, the previous week's NefJC discussion and we have about an hour long discussion mm-hmm. about the article. It's kind of a, a, a really good, uh, journal club with, uh, with five people. Uh, and it's been, it's been a lot of fun, dude. I've been, I've been enjoying it. It's a boy. What you guys make it look easy. It is really hard to do these things. I am, uh, I, I have more respect for the curbsiders. Uh, and I had a lot to begin with, but, uh, it is, uh, it is a, uh, labor intensive project. I thought it was going to be called Joel Top Raw and Unfiltered. <laughs> we are, we are not that good. We are completely filtered. <laughs> that's it. That's his late night podcast. It's a totally that's different I mean. audience. <laughs> I use a pseudonym for that one. I, I thought we were going to keep that quiet, guys. Come on. You ever watch Parks and Recreation, how uh, Ron Swanson had this, like, I forget, he was like a saxophone player, like this famous jazz musician. It was like kind of a secret. Anyway, kind of reminds me. I could see you, Joel, having that same sort of alter ego, at, you know, where you play a, a, a jazz saxophone in clubs in Detroit uh, on the, you know, on your time off. Yeah, uh, being compared to Ron Swanson's uh, my high point of my life. <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he's wonderful. There you go. Stewart's got a picture of him up yep. there. Uh, Hannah, I believe you had a a punny question for people here. What? Oh yeah. Well, so what I was kind of wondering, um, if you could be any part of the nephron, which would you be, and why? For all of y'all. I will, of course, refuse to answer this, but uh, I, I would love for you to tell me. I made me. up an answer for you. Don't worry. <laughs> I figured you would have. Well, you answer, ask the question. I think Hannah has to go first. Exactly. Uh, oh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm the macula densa because I'm kind of small and I like to be in control of what's going on in my life. Uh, since Paul isn't here, <laughs> came up with, with one for him, too. He's kind of the proximal <laughs> collecting tubule. <laughs> and that he um, he sort of takes everything in very calmly and then adds like a little bit of sort of acerbic humor, sort of the ammonia genesis of the show. Okay, I'm game. What do you think I am? <laughs> well, do you have one for yourself? No, okay. <laughs> not at all. So I thought you were the peritubular capillary because you move really quickly and then you bring in all the stuff from outside, like the Amazon stuff and the pictures. and The, the ridiculous stuff. thing is that you put some thought into this. <laughs> And then I'd probably put excessive thought into this. And then Paul and I have to try to bring it back on the rails. <laughs> so you're saying yeah. you're the loop of Henley? I am the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henley, right? <laughs> I am the engine that drives this podcast forward. <laughs> so Matt is the collecting duct. He's the medullary collecting duct because he fine tunes it all for us and somehow makes this all sound good. Yeah. Hopefully. All right, Hannah, that's very, very well thought out. A very well thought out pun. I'm, <laughs> I'm always impressed. Did, did you want to follow that up with a pick of the week for the audience? Uh, yeah. So this week I read the book In Shock by Rana Oddish. Have you guys read this book? No, not at all. Oh, it's it's absolutely amazing. So um, she was uh, kind of a, about to start ICU attending um, when she suddenly became critically ill uh, and had the experience of being a patient kind of in her own ICU. Um, And she talks about the experience of being a critically ill patient and how it gave her a lot of insight um, into the acute process, the recovery and sort of communication as a doctor. Um, It's 
absolutely amazing. So I saw a couple excerpts of it on Twitter, and I realized that just that was kind of changing how I talk to people. So I figured I had to read the whole book, and it's um, it's definitely kind of practice changing, communication changing, at least for me. I'm sold. That sounds amazing. It's I read it in like 24 hours because it was so good. <laughs> Joel, what about you? So I got uh, real excited about the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And uh, HBO has this old miniseries called From the Earth to the Moon. Uh, Tom Hanks produced it. I think he did this after Apollo 13. And it's uh, it's 10 episodes that cover kind of every element of the Apollo mission. And there's a lot of nerd stuff like, how do they come up with the idea of the lunar lander? And how do they build it? And it's uh, it's really good. But it is it is wild like every single character in that show is a white male there's not a woman there's not an asian it is it, it's kind of it's shocking oh. to think that and 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 what really solidified this is i just recently saw um once upon a time in hollywood have you guys seen this yet no so it's this on is the a, list but i think paul recommended it recently yeah it's it's the new tarantino movie and it's a 1969 hollywood and Again, same thing. It is a white male world. Like, and I get this to some degree, we're still there, but boy, is it different than we were in 1969. It is kind of, it is kind of crazy to think, to look back that way, kind of a looked back to the past. Stuart, I'd recommend, but I'd recommend Earth to the Moon. It's pretty good, pretty good podcast if you're interested in Apollo. And by podcast, I mean miniseries. Podcast. <laughs> uh, so okay. I I recently rebooted our Pocus episode because uh, Paul and I had attended two different conferences where we got to really get into this. And as a bedside teaching skill or just as a bedside tool, I feel like it's helping me connect with patients and learners. And just having a pocket ultrasound now, I won't really come, I'm not going to come out with the specific brand, but I will just say, if you do have a pocket ultrasound, fly. or if you have a, if you have access to a pocket ultrasound, or just ultrasound machines in your hospital, it is a lot of fun to be able to go to the bedside, look at people's heart, lungs, IVC, look at their, you know, look, show people the insides of their bodies. They love it. And uh, your kids will love it too. You can mess around at home <laughs> if you want to. <laughs> Uh, but I, I think that uh, also the, the people that run these courses in the POCUS community are just amazing educators. They're so enthusiastic. They're so generous with their time and knowledge. I'm not being paid to say any of this, even though if it may seem that way, I'm just really excited about it. And I just want to mention it as much as possible on the show. And how long were these conferences you went to? There, the so I, I went to the ACP course. That was a two day course. Uh, unfortunately, I was sick for the second day. But uh, Paul, t- Paul was at the second day. He tells me it was j- equally as good as the first day. And I went to the AIUM course, which was in Portland in July. I think they hold it in Portland every July. And also, again, amazing. Our chief of Pocus, Renee Diverstal, is involved in both of those, and she puts on a great conference. And how competent do you feel after doing those? classes i think i need a lot more touches that's that's where the pocket ultrasound comes in but i can definitely identify structures i can definitely start to say is there a pericardial fusion is this ef depressed or not some like very binary type things i feel like i'm like are there curly b lines here 
is I, I think um, I'm getting there. And and also the nice thing is, at least in my hospital at Cashlack, I can look at the formal echo so I can compare my images to theirs and I can get what like what was the read based on what I thought it was versus, versus what the formal echo is. Um, so yeah, it, it's I think there's a lot of opportunities to get immediate feedback on that. So, so I would recommend it. Excellent. And my pick of the week is that I do not recommend a movie by the uh, artist, uh, the director formerly known as M. Night Shyamalan. Uh, <laughs> I, I hear he's, he's presently known as uh, M. Night Shyamalan as well, but also formerly. A uh, film called Glass. Uh, I watched it on the uh, the airplane flight here. It's, it's uh, uh, pleasantly atrocious and uh, whimsically boring. <laughs> So wait, um, so are you recommending this movie or no, not? No, not at all. Okay, <laughs> except for what the week is to avoid this like poison. <laughs> yeah, well, th- there's only Should one thing. Should we still link really to it in the show me. notes, or do you want to yeah, sure, link whatever, to something else? <laughs> no, no, no. Go, go, go ahead. So the, the only reason is because they have the same uh, the, the the same actor who played Bruce Willis's son in Unbreakable in 2000, who plays his son again in this uh, film as well. So you, you kind of see him; he's 13, and now he's 31. I think it's hilarious because. <laughs> I don't know. He was 13. I was 30. I don't know. I found that hilarious. So you're saying natural human aging you find hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> no, because he was 13. And you flipped numbers. Now he's 30. Now, you know what? Oh, I got it, you. Yeah, it's just one of my autistic things, I think. <laughs> okay, Hannah, maybe we should start out with the show at this point. Let's let's learn some actual things about hypernatremia. You're never going to get those 10 minutes back. <laughs> oh, man. But you'll be a better person for it. I, I, not this week. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, So just to start out, we wanted to ask you, I heard that there's a first lesson of hypernatremia. Can you tell us what it is? Hypernatremia is the opposite of hyponatremia, right? That seems obvious, right? So it's a high sodium rather than a low sodium. But it's true in other ways. Like hyponatremia, that's hard. Hypernatremia, that's easy, right? And it's easy in a lot of different aspects. Like remember in hyponatremia, we had to worry about, oh, there's true hyponatremia, but don't get fooled by the false hyponatremia. There's no such thing as pseudo hypernatremia. If the sodium's high, the sodium is high, full stop. Okay. In hyponatremia, we had to meticulously watch the rate of correction. No need to worry about that in hypernatremia. We'll talk about some guidelines about what you want to hit. Those are just for style points. If you go too fast, you go too slow. Eh. No big deal. Okay. So uh, hypernatremia, it's easy. It's just, we're, we're going to get through it. We're going to go over it. And there's some frustrating aspects as people get wrong, but this is just, it's not the uh, pressure cooker that hyponatremia is. Uh, on that note, then with that little reassurance, uh, let's get to the case. So Miss Paula Yurick is a 53 year old female on whom you're being consulted for hypernatremia. Does she like to go by Polly? <laughs> Well, that's her brother, she but probably. we'll get there later. <laughs> You're going to hear from the Uric family her, tonight. Her parents named her their kids Paula and Polly. That's just cruel. <laughs> Paula and Polly. Yeah. Occasionally he goes by Ollie. Anyway, she had been having some abdominal pain for a few weeks. Um, she had been having her some abdominal pain. Her second cousin, Anne, who's on dialysis. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm so glad Paul's not here right now. <laughs> All right. 
So Ms. Yurik, she's been having abdominal pain for a few weeks, maybe weeks to months. Her primary care doctor sent her for a right upper quadrant ultrasound, and it showed gallstones. So she was scheduled for an outpatient cholecystectomy. On the morning of surgery, her pre-op lab showed a sodium of 155 from 143 in pre-op clinic two weeks prior. Her only other abnormal lab value was a calcium of 14.5. When you talk to her, you also find out that she's been drinking a lot more water than a lot more water than usual recently, and she's also been urinating a lot more. So the surgery is canceled, she's admitted, and they call us to find out what's going on. Okay. So uh, we have the patient with uh, new, on- new onset hypernatremia, and we have hypercalcemia. So always the first and central question in hypernatremia is, why is the patient not drinking water, Right. Even if you have a complete absence of ADH, which is one of the primary defenses against hypernatremia, if you have easy access to water, you'll be able to keep your sodium normal, okay? And so this patient, anytime you have someone who has a high sodium, you're like, well, why aren't you drinking water? Because that should defend against it. And uh, this one's clear, right? Because the patient was made NPO after midnight, came in following those instructions, and so that's why she's not drinking water is because their doctors told her not to. So this is iatrogenic hypernatremia. But we tell people to be MPO after midnight all the time, regularly, and they, they don't get hypernatremia. So there's some, actually, let me rewind a little bit. Let's talk about some of the other reasons people might not be able to drink water, right? So this one is because she was MPO after midnight. Uh, some of the other possibilities are patients wandering in a, de- in a desert. There's no water available. Obvious, they're not going to have water available. They're going to get hypernatremic. Uh, patient is in a coma, right? Patients in a coma, unable to drink water. They're going to get hypernatremic. Patients, uh, uh, babies, babies can't ask for water. They depend on their parents to give them water. They're going to get hypernatremic or we're going to be predisposed to that because they can't, they don't have that defense available to them. Uh, people in the ICU, even if they're not in a coma, tied to the bed, unable to secure water on their own, they're going to get hypernatremic or we're going to be predisposed to that. And then uh, patients with altered mental status would be another would be another big class, and I think that's probably the most common ones that we see. Patients uh, develop confusion for whatever, usually from bacteremia, and uh, they don't ask for water. They don't get water on their own. Come in with an elevated sodium. So that's your first step: is why aren't they drinking water? This is usually not much of a mystery, and that needs to be corrected. What about so, the salt overdose? Type right, right. So and so in that situation, right. Even if they have an overdose of salt, if they're able to ask for water, they should be able to normalize their serum sodium. So uh, the problem is, if it's severe enough, you know, the uh, person who drinks a quart of soy sauce, they end up in a coma before they can drink enough water to neutralize that elevated sodium. Or uh, uh, you had mentioned earlier, uh, salting the baby. Well, you know, uh, there's a a passage in Ezekiel in the Bible where they talk about rubbing salt on a newborn infant. And this is taken literally in some parts of the world, I think Turkey and Syria, I'm not absolutely certain of that. And they uh, rub salt on the baby and the skin is so thin, they get, they'll absorb cutaneous sodium and, they can, and these children can have hypernatremia. And again, problem there is they can't ask for water. If they could, they would. Uh, patients that uh, have a cardiac arrest, and are given a few rounds of sodium bicarbonate as part of the resuscitation. An amp of sodium bicarbonate has a sodium concentration of a thousand millimoles per liter. And so you give a few of these rounds, 
you're going to develop hypernatremia, and those patients oftentimes are unable to stand up, walk over to the sink, and get a glass of water following the resuscitation. I mean, maybe your resuscitations are more successful than mine, but uh, usually they're just that's not that's not an option. So that even in cases of salt overdose, you still have to ask answer the question: Why aren't they drinking water? The other key thing is that we mentioned that. Uh, Patients that are kept MPO after midnight, like they don't normally develop hypernatremia. Like that's very unusual. There has to be something else going on. Yeah, we told her not to drink water, but there's something else going on. And, and the tell here is in her history, right? She reports multiple weeks of increased water intake, increased urination. And so this patient sounds like they have a lot of urine output. This is a, uh, a typical, um, when you also Go have on. to think like, is she just on a diuretic or maybe she's surreptitious, maybe she's taking a diuretic because she's like a bodybuilder or something and she's trying to, you know, cut up for a show or something like that. Right. And, and, and what I'd say in that situation, uh, especially with loop diuretics, that's a, that's a cause of increased renal loss. So DI would be one example that increased lo- uh, renal loss. Loop diuretic would be another one. Osmotic diure- diuretic from uncontrolled uh, diabetes would be another one. And it could be extra renal losses, uh, diarrhea, insensible losses. Maybe she has burns over 80% of the body. I'm not sure if we mentioned that in her review of systems. Were there burns over 80% of her body, Hannah? Uh, no, yeah. They didn't schedule her for an elective cholecystectomy <laughs> with the burns. Yeah. Yeah. So it's good. Yeah. So we can, we can probably pair off. It's probably not insensible losses. And uh, she did have the increased water, in t- water intake and, and urination. So maybe that's diuretic induced. Maybe that's DI. Uh, maybe that's an osmotic diuresis. Maybe she's uncontrolled diabetes. All those are possibilities. Where she's and and with loop diuretics, with the osmotic diuresis, with glucose, like you were talking about, you're losing much more water than you would be sodium. So that's why this is this is happening. Yeah, right. Because when you have an osmotic diuresis, the renin angiotensin aldosterone system is intact. They're going to be able to reabsorb a lot of the sodium preventing too much volume deficiency, but they will lose a lot of water. They're not going to be able to reabsorb uh, all that, all of the, all of the water. And so exactly right. You're going to be losing relatively more water than sodium predisposing you to the hypernatremia. And I'm sure we're, we're going to get into the thiazide diuretics at some point during this, because that's a bit different than the loops, right? Completely different story. Yeah, that's right. So we've got a couple reasons that she could potentially be hypernatremic. So if she's not able to drink like she is today, but then also something else going on, like a sodium overdose, loss of water, either renally or extra renally sort of diarrhea. Um, but what do you think? She's got this calcium. What do you think is going on with her? Yeah, I think the, the calcium is the obvious tell here, right? In the basic metabolic, there's also a calcium level. Calcium level is high and that is one of two electrolyte abnormalities that causes a reversible nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, right? So hypercalcemia or hypokalemia can both cause nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, okay? Um, and so just uh, just a quick reminder of what we're talking about with diabetes insipidus. So ADH normally is the hormone that causes you to retain water. It adds hydration to the body. and uh, And so it's primary triggers is going to be an increase in osmolality. So you have an increase in osmolality and the body says, oh, we better dilute that with some water. So it prevents loss of water through the kidneys. And so you have this hormone that is made in the hypothalamus, vasopressin, stored in the posterior pituitary, and then released in response to increases in osmolality. 
that ADH then uh, travels. There's two receptors. There's V1 receptors. It causes vasoconstriction. We're not concerned about that here. And there's V2 receptors that exist on the uh, medullary collecting duct and a few other areas in the kidney, but the principal area we're talking about is the medullary collecting duct. So this is the very last structure in the nephron. Okay. And this is, uh, this is, uh, Matt's portion where you can uh, fine tune the urine. Okay. <laughs> and so, uh, ADH binds or uh, vasopressin binds the V2 receptor on the medullary uh, collecting duct that causes uh, pre-made aquaporin channels to get put into the epithelial membrane on the uh, apical side. So it's going to be, uh, the, you'll have a water channel now in the, uh, the urine channel where the uh, tubular fluid can be reabsorbed. And the reason that it's reabsorbed is on the basal lateral side of the medullary collecting duct is a very concentrated medullary interstitium. Right. This is the saltiest place in the body. Right. If you look at the entire body, the osmolality in the entire body is identical, 285, except for in the kidney. And then if you drill down to what portion of the kidney, the medullary collecting duct has this very, very intense salty brine with uh, peak osmolality somewhere around 1200 millimoles per kilogram water. Super, super salty. It's kind of like the sauerkraut of the body. Joel, you set that up for me, right? Like, because you're you're the loop. I'm the uh, medullary collecting duck. I'm, if you're not doing oh your job, gosh. if you're not doing your job, I can't. You know, the the ADH is gonna the ADH this... response is gonna be blunted, right, Joel? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a <laughs> Hannah and I worked for weeks on that. Okay. <laughs> that <is ridiculous. laughs> yeah, it's an alley loop, though, rather. <laughs> Hannah, I would like a graphic with uh, me with me somehow as the uh, medullary collecting duck and Joel as the loop somehow alley ooping. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you'll I'm, figure it out. <laughs> I really will. In there. You guys can expect this on the show notes. <laughs> so the key the key part of this is that vasopressin opens the door. But you need to have that concentrated medullary interstitium to draw the water through. Okay. And, uh, as Matt already alluded to, that concentrated medullary interstitium is generated by the loop of Henley, right? You've got the descending thin limb, the ascending thin limb, the thick ascending limb, and the countercurrent multiplier, and all that other stuff we don't, none of nobody really understands and just pretends to. All of that is driven by the thick ascending limb where you have the sodium potassium two chloride channel. Okay. And that's what's blocked by Lasix. But it's actually, it's actually pretty interesting. So you have, um, think about it. You got a sodium, potassium, and two chloride. So that's two cations and two anions. And so it's a nice electroneutral transporter. Okay. However, we got plenty of chloride in the tubule and we got plenty of sodium in the tubule, but the potassium concentration is really low, right? If you think about the, you know, chloride's about 100 and sodium's about 140 and potassium's four. And so this, this, pro, this molecule, this transporter would quickly extinguish, run out of potassium, and it would shut itself down. And so the body cleverly says, well, what we'll do is we'll reabsorb the potassium, and then we'll recycle it back out and be able to reabsorb it again. And so we'll just, we just recycle the potassium, and it exits through a channel called ROMK. Okay, so now you got two chloride going in, one sodium going in, and a potassium with no net movement because it comes in and then gets secreted back out. And so now you no longer have an electroneutral transporter. You actually are generating a negative charge on the inside of the cell, two chloride, one sodium, and a positive charge in the tubule fluid. And that positive charge is used to drive the reabsorption of calcium and magnesium. And they go through a paracellular pathway. 
So now what we have is we have a sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter, and we've been able to leverage that to also reabsorb not only sodium and potassium and chloride, but also um, calcium and magnesium. It's a really clever system. The calcium reabsorption is regulated. There's a calcium sensing receptor on the basolateral side, and every time the blood calcium concentration gets high, it shuts down ROMK. That prevents potassium recycling. Potassium is quickly ex uh, extinguished or runs out in the tubular fluid and essentially effectively shuts down the sodium potassium 2 chloride transporter. So hypercalcemia actually exerts a Lasix like effect at the thick ascending limb of the loop of Henle. I have never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, I definitely did not understand that before this. Yeah, but if you think about patients that have hypercalcemia, well, what are one of the symptoms? Well, they are all volume depleted. That sounds like Lasix. Uh, they all complain of polyuria and polydipsia. Oh, that sounds like Lasix too. And they all have this, uh, usually have a pre-renal azotemia. Oh, well, that sounds like Lasix too, right? Like it, it, when you start to think about it, it fits the picture pretty well. And so if you have prolonged hypercalcemia, just like being on prolonged Lasix, you're going to be predisposed to hypernatremia because you're going to you're going to wash out that medullary interstitium because you can't if your thick ascending limb is no longer working, you're not going to be able to generate or maintain that concentrated medullary interstitium. So that even in the presence of ADH, even if you open up that door, you're not going to have that concentrated medullary interstitium pulling the water from the tubular fluid. And so, and that's what and so what we're talking about is even in the presence of ADH, you don't get a lot of water reabsorption. That's the definition of nephrogenic di diabetes insipidus. Mm. And so that's what's happening. There's also probably a mechanism where calcium blocks uh, vasopressin activity at the cortical, at the medullary collecting duct. But this, uh, this lit, this, uh, uh, calcium channel, this calcium sensing receptor blocking the ROMK is way cooler. <laughs> so for, for this patient, all we've got to do is, uh, figure out why she's hypercalcemic and treat her. There you go. That's that. That was exactly that was when I got this consult. When they 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 pulled in the chief of cash lack, I was like, I got this. <laughs> I was like, what what? Watch me strut my stuff. All right. So you know, when you're working up the hypercalcemia, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to say, is this uh, is it the most common outpatient cause of hypercalcemia is a primary hyperparathyroidism, and so we're like, okay, let's take a look at the PTH, and the PTH is suppressed, so we can rule out primary hyperpara. PTH is responding normally. Uh, then we are looking at, uh, causes of, uh, PTH independent hypercalcemia. So, uh, you're going to have, um, uh, um, hypercalcemia of malignancy, which can be in the form of, uh, skeletal invasion. So you could get a skeletal survey. We didn't do that here, uh, but it would have been negative because that's not the diagnosis. Uh, you can get a PTHRP, uh, which we didn't do because we already had the diagnosis. You can check, you can have a elevated, 125 vitamin D. You can have immobilization. Have we hit all of them? And milk alkali syndrome. And uh, so patient wasn't taken Tums, no milk alkali, no calcium carbonate in her history. Uh, she denies taking uh, vitamin D. So no vitamin D intoxication is not likely. Uh, but additionally, we checked a 25 OHD and that was low. And that's the nutritional form of vitamin D. But then we checked a 125, the active form of vitamin D, and that was 113, which is pretty high. And that's the, that was deriving her hypercalcemia. Okay. Now she's not getting this nutritionally. This is not 
too much, you know, not a exogenous source. She's just converting her endogenous 25-OH vitamin D to the active form in an unregulated f- fashion. And there's just a couple of diseases that cause that. Lymphoma can cause that. Uh, any kind of the, uh, any of the granulomatous diseases can cause that. And, uh, sure enough, on review of systems, she had a cough and we checked an abnormal, she had an abnormal chest x-ray, widened mediastinum, and, uh, she had a sarcoidosis as the etiology. Very cool case. Yeah. So slam dunk. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you started Miss Uric on prednisone. And a week later, her sodium is 142, her calcium is 10. She's still having a little bit of polyuria, polydipsia, but they send her home, they reschedule her for surgery two weeks after the original admission. Yeah, so- And what do you know? Oh. Well, I, was just, I just want to add that that uh, the forms of hypercalcemia that are due to 125 vitamin D are exquisitely sensitive to steroids. You know, that steroids is oftentimes listed as a treatment for hypercalcemia. This is the time it really works the best. And she had a beautiful response here. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So we were- it's the we morning fi- of surgery. <laughs> yeah. We fixed her. We fixed her. We sent her home. And she she was still complaining of that um, polyuria and polydipsia. But uh, our reasoning was it takes a little while for her to reconstitute her medullary interstitium. And we just said, hey, give it a few days. And this polyuria and polydipsia is going to get better. And you're going to do fine as long as that calcium remains well controlled. So in other words, the loop would start working again. She would regenerate that gradient so that when ADH is there, it can it can bring the water gets drawn out of the the distal tubule into the interstitium. Those are perfect words, yes. So the morning of surgery, she comes in and her sodium is 158. So now what do we do? Yeah. Okay. So and on that basic metabolic, what was her calcium? Uh normal. I don't think we it's 10. 10 it was now. 10. Yeah, it's 10. It was it's still 10. 10. Yeah. It was still 10. Yeah. So, uh, so this is kind of a rinse, wash, repeat type of situation, right? Surgery thinks we're nuts. <laughs> they brought her back two weeks later. She has the exact same problem. It's not the exact same problem, right? Because the obvious cause of nephrogenic DI is no longer there. And, uh, yeah, she doesn't have the hypercalcemia. And so this time, we we're going to have to dig a little deeper. Like the first time when we saw her, like the diagnosis just slapped us in our face and we didn't, we didn't dig deep. We're like, Oh, it's the hypercalcemia, obviously. Um, and so, uh, this time we had to work up the, uh, the cause. Now, again, she still has the complaint of polyuria and polydipsy. We still think she has diabetes insipidus, but there's not an obvious cause of nephrogenic diabetes insipidus here. So the first step here is you want to, evaluate whether uh, it's nephrogenic or central, right? And I guess you'd want to r- rule out an osmotic diuresis, check a blood sugar, make sure she doesn't have a glucose of 500 that could be contributing to this. And she doesn't. And uh, when you want to differentiate central diabetes insipidus, which is the inability to produce ADH from uh, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which is the inability to respond to ADH, all you do is you give them pharmacologic ADH and you see if they respond. Right, so you give them a dose of DDAVP, which is a semi-synthetic form of vasopressin. It does not bind the V1 receptors, which is great. So you don't get this hypertensive response, this vasospastic response, which you don't want. But you do get a nice brisk response at the V2 receptors. And if they have an intact medullary interstitium and they have a kidney that responds to the ADH, you're going to get an immediate drop in urine output. You get an immediate urinary increase in urinary concentration. And uh, this is exactly what happened. We gave her a dose of IVDDAVP. Urine output immediately fell. She'd making uh, she'd making 
eight, 10 liters of urine before, dropped down immediately to a normal level or near normal level. And, uh, and, uh, we then proceeded to, well, we need to figure out what's going on in her brain. And so, uh, I remember going in the next morning, we'd scheduled her for a, uh, an MRI and, uh, went in to see her in the morning and she was so grateful. She was like, Dr. Toff, chief of nephrology at Cash Lab. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the, that was the first night I've been able to sleep through the night in weeks. I got the best night of sleep I'd ever had. And she had been waking up every two or three hours not to go to the bathroom. She'd been waking up because she had such intense thirst. Her thirst was waking up. And then she would be in the bathroom drinking water. She, oh, I might as well go to the bathroom now. But it was, she remembered, she was very specific. It was a thirst that woke her up. It was, that was so dramatic to me. And she was immensely grateful. And uh, we got the MRI and uh turned out she had neurosarcoidosis and she had a Goomba right on her pituitary that was causing the uh the central diabetes insipidus. Such a good case. Yeah, so she had both peripheral diabetes insipidus from the hypercalcemia that kind of partially resolved, and then she also had central diabetes insipidus from the neurosarcoidosis. And both were only really revealed when she was NPO for surgery. Yeah, I mean, it was one of those things that she had the classic complaints of diabetes insipidus, that she was drinking water all the time, she was peeing all the time, but she was able to maintain a normal serum sodium, which is usually what they do at the expense of like being able to live their lives because their full-time job is now drinking water. I wonder how often this is this is missed because we always think, you know, is it diabetes? Are they on diuretics? And you know, maybe they're maybe they're just drinking a lot of soda or coffee or something, and I just wonder how often it's missed. I guess it would persist, and eventually you'd probably figure it out. But yeah, these are not common diseases. Yeah, this is a, I don't I, I don't think we have a a a, a, a silent epidemic of DI okay. <laughs> underneath underneath the surface. The, I think we're, t- we're truly talking about a rare disease. The other thing I was going to ask you, we we talked about a little bit in in uh, pre recording this. So DDAVP is that also same as desmopressin, right? It's the same. Yeah. The same. Yeah. And w- when we did our show on BPH, the the urologist we were talking to, he mentioned that uh, desmopressin is a drug that some people are now using for nocturia to kind of help people sleep through the night. It made me think of that when you were talking about this woman. So I, I have not had the, had the occasion to use this yet. I'm not sure if Stuart has started to use it since that time or uh, if Paul was here, we could ask him. But what do you, do you recommend this, Joel? Does it seem as, like I've, a safe enough practice? I've tried it a couple times and I have not yet found a patient who had a good response to it. Mm-hmm. That uh, Patients usually had their, their polyuria or their nocturia didn't change. That was my experience, and maybe I'm doing a poor job at patient selection. Um, I wonder if it's because it's more of like an irritative symptom, like urgency is more of an irritative symptom. It's not like a, it's not like they're making tons and tons of urine. So, so you're saying they need to drink more water? <laughs> I, well, I, I no, I just think that they need how confusing can we <laughs> they be? need something different. <laughs> I just think that. I derailed us. Let's get back. Hannah, let's get back to the case. You derailed us. Anyway. All right. <laughs> Sorry, guys. All right. So kind of talking a little bit about DDAVP, do you have any tips in terms of advising people sort of what they can expect on the drug? What is it like in terms of financial toxicity? Is this sort of an insulin or is this a warfarin in terms of how much it's going to cost people? So I looked it up on a good RX and it was it was about a dollar a day for the drug. So 
not not too bad. I mean, it's, it's not it's not warfarin, but uh, it's it's certainly not insulin either. So uh, not not too expensive. Uh, and you know, one of the things about this drug, it's kind of a it's kind of a lifestyle drug. Like right? you take the medication to lower the urine output. They're able to maintain their sodium without it, right? As she as she showed, but this will just allow her to have the freedom of, to not be attached to a water bottle all the time. All right, so I think we can move on to our next case. Uh, our next case is Paula's father, Mr. Manny Eric, who is a 78-year-old man who was hospitalized this morning for treatment of increased urine output and altered mental status. So he comes in and his sodium is 162. What kind of factors could be predisposing Mr. Mr. Eric to hypernatremia? Right. So again, just like in every, you know, the first question always in hypernatremia is why is this patient not drinking? And in all the cases, again, it's usually pretty obvious in this one we have the altered mental status to blame. And the important thing is if you're gonna if you're saying the altered mental status is due to the hypernatremia, then you can't say that the hypernatremia is the lack of water is due to the altered mental status. Like the altered mental status has to come first. Then they stop drinking, and then they develop the hypernatremia. So he has some something causing the hypernatremia. I don't know if he's got uh, sepsis, which is a, not an uncommon cause of that in the elderly, but something that would need to be investigated. But the altered mental status is generating the uh, is is causing the um, uh, uh, patient to fail to drink water, and it's unclear from the stem at least that I, at least that I can see why he might have. Um, uh, I mean, it gets he has the increased urine output as the cause uh, of the, the what's predisposing him, the lack of water plus the increased urine output leading to hypernatremia. And in general, kind of why do patients get hypernatremic in the ICU? What is this ICU hypernatremia phenomenon? Yeah, so, uh, you know, hypernatremia is unfortunately too common in the ICU, right? Once patients are in the ICU, they're really dependent on uh the intensive care team to play hypothalamus and kind of regulate their sodium for them, right? Patients aren't going to be able to self-regulate by asking for water and drinking water because they're in a coma or they're sedated or they're tied to a bed or what have you. And uh, this is something, uh, and then if you correlate uh, changes in so- elevations in sodium to uh, ICU mortality, I mean, this, this, they run, run together pretty tightly. And I don't think many people believe that the mortality is due to the hypernatremia. They kind of feel like this is a uh, marker for uh, how attentive their ICU care is. And that the fact that as their uh, sodium rises, their hospital mortality also rises, indication that they're probably not getting the best medical care. And some groups are using uh, sodium hypernatremia as a marker of quality in ICUs. So if you want to be working in a good ICU, you know, pay attention to their sodium every morning to make sure you correct it. All right. So we're going to do that. Um, so or rather the ICU team will. So his body weight is 60 kilograms. His urine output, um, we estimate it's around six liters a day. His urine sodium is 30. Urine potassium is 15. He's not drinking any water, but he is getting antibiotics in a liter of normal saline a day and 125 milliliters an hour of maintenance LR. So they red salted. Um, so kind of to start out with, that was a whole lot of numbers. Can you, how do we treat hypernatremia in this kind of setting? And Joel, I, I wanted to just bring up before, because the labs, the, with the labs here, do you, should people be sending uh, plasma and urinosms as well when they're, when they're working up hypernatremia? Is that, is that necessary? Was there any other tests you would have sent along That's with this? Question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so uh, 
If you're looking for a diagnosis of diabetes insipidus, which this guy may have, you'll need the urine osmolality. And so what you're expecting in somebody who's got hypernatremia is for them to turn their urine osmolality up as high as possible, right? And so for patients with intact kidney function, no chronic kidney disease, they should be able to crank that up to 1,200, okay? Young, healthy people, intact kidneys up to 1,200. Oftentimes, we'll see patients that are on chronic diuretics, have chronic kidney disease, and they may only be able to get their uh, urine osmolality up to 800 or so. But uh, urine osmolality will give you a sense. And so if you have an inappropriately dilute urine in the presence of hypernatremia, there's going to be your diagnosis of diabetes insipidus. Okay. Um, so uh, urine osmolality is helpful. A serum osmolality, again, we mentioned at the very top of the podcast that, that we don't have a situation here like with sodium where you have to make sure that the osmolality is decreased when the sodium is decreased, so you get a true hyponatremia. You don't have to worry about that here, right? If the sodium is elevated, they've got hypernatremia. There's no exceptions. There's no trick questions here. So I'm not sure what value you get from the serum osmolality in this situation. There are two calculations that you need to do in uh, treating hypernatremia. So the first one is you need to figure out what their fluid deficit is. So the fluid deficit says, okay, I've got a sodium here. It's 162. How much water do I need to add to this patient to get their sodium down to a target level? My target level is going to be uh, a serum sodium 12 below where we are right now or a sodium of 144, whichever one is a smaller difference. So from 162 minus 12 gets us to 150. So my target here is 150. And to get the fluid deficit, all I do is I take uh, current sodium, 162, minus target sodium, 150, that's 12. Divide that by our target sodium, which is 150, and that's going to be your percent that the sodium is elevated. I think that was uh, 8% in this case. Mm-hmm. And then you multiply that by their total body water. And the conventional equation for total body water is um, uh, 60% of body weight. Uh, but you need to make some adjustments there. So it's 60% of total body weight for a young, lean male. And as you get older and fatter, that number gets lower, right? So, uh, oh, excuse me, and as you get more female. So generally, women, you'll knock that down by 10%. So 50% of body weight for women. Uh, if you're old, an elderly man, it'll also be 50% of body weight. Uh, so elderly women, about 45%. But if you get somebody who's very obese, right? Because the thing to remember is that muscle is 75% water and fat is only 10% water. So as a higher proportion of your weight is generated by adipose tissue, your percent body water for your total body is going to go down. And I wish to, I could tell you that there was a, an, a good equation to do this, to figure out what that percent body water is. But I really just kind of go in and get a look at the patient and get a feel for it and take a guess. There's got to be a there's got to be a calculator you can use to just that plugs in some of the numbers for you. Well, so if you take a look at most of the calculators, they'll ask the age and gender. And from there, they try to figure out the adiposity. And I was like, that's absurd, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they, that's what the calculators have right now. If you take a look at uh, MedCalc or, uh, and it's, they're not good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. M- MD Calc has like, are they a child, adult or elderly? Are, is the sex male or female? And then their weight, their sodium and the desired sodium. Right. You would think that BMI would be important. 
Right. You would think that some kind of measure, you know, give me some skinfold thickness. That's what I need. Right. Uh, Sounds like a chance to have your name on a formula. Oh my gosh. That would, <laughs> that would be, if I could, if I could get my name on a formula, complete. <laughs> Is that making it in the nephrology world? Is that? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> All right. Um, but right now we've kind of got what we've got. Um, and can you kind of walk us through the math for this patient? Right. So we got 8% and we said he was 60 kilograms and what we said 50% uh, water is all we went with. Yes. Yeah. And so uh, that came out to uh, 2.4 liters of uh, fluid deficit. And so this is the water deficit. And I see time and time again, people stop here. And I think this is what happens with this team right here. Yeah. So the team says, great. Um, did all this math. It turned out to be 2.4 liters in 24 hours. So in order to replace that, we're just going to give 100 milliliters an hour for 24 hours. Of, of so they fluid? do that. What fluid did they give? Of D5W. Yeah. That's right. And so the ideal fluid, you're, you're trying to give water, right? So D5W is a good approximation of water. But if the patient's bowels working, and this patient doesn't seem to have any reason that their bowels are not working, like you know, if you have a NG or OG or a PEG that you can give water in, that's the ideal fluid, and you're going to be doing better with that. Uh, sometimes these calculations, especially for bigger people and higher degrees of hyperditremia, are huge volumes. And as you give more and more D5W, you run the risk of developing hyperglycemia, and the hyperglycemia generates osmotic diuresis, and osmotic diuresis develops more hyperditremia. And so you can start to be chasing your tail as you start to titrate up the D5W higher and higher. So if you can avoid D5W in any way, you should. You mean like with a quarter normal saline with no, you know, no extra, like if you were going to have to give it IV. No, I, I, if you, well, that, that's the problem. Once you have to give it IV, you're, you're, kind of, you're kind of trapped and the D5 is going to be the fluid that you give most often. Why don't we give sterile water in an IV, right? Because it's low osmolality and it'll uh, cause hemolysis. You can't, you can't give sterile water into the blood vessels. Ah, that's right. So ideally, you want to use you want to use the 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 GI tract. So this patient doesn't currently have an NG. We don't know how long this is going to last, uh, and he's not really drinking water because of his mentation. So they go with 100 milliliters an hour um, for the next day, and they recheck a sodium 24 hours later, and it's 168. So they call in the salt whisperer. So what's going on? Yeah, so this is so what they did is they only did half the calculation. They looked at the water deficit, but they didn't look at the ongoing losses, right? This patient's making six liters of urine a day, and they just ignored that and assumed that the patient was losing, you know, I guess isotonic fluid in that, and that's not the case, right? Um, so we can do that. Now we have to use, read to run the calculation. Sodium is now 168. Correction of 12 brings you down to 156. This is a, a this now the calculations comes out to two point three liters for that because it's only about a seven point seven percent reduction rather than an eight percent. Excuse me, a seven point seven percent increase in sodium rather than the eight percent. Okay, so we're going to do two point three liters to get the fluid deficit. That's to bring it down to one fifty six. But then we need to account for the ongoing losses. And so patients making six liters of urine, and uh, what I generally say is that this is a, the, the formal calculation is called an electrolyte free water clearance. And what you're going to do is you're going to say what proportion of that six liters of urine is just pure water with the balance of it being, uh, all of the, uh, cations at the same concentration in plasma. 
I'm not sure I want to go too deep into this. Um, but the, the calculation is you take the, um, uh, urine sodium plus urine potassium and you divide that by the serum sodium. And that's going to give you your kind of electrolyte content. Take one minus that. That's going to be your water content. And you multiply that by the urine volume. But what I would say, what I would advise is kind of a quick and dirty thing that if the patient's making a liter or less of urine, you can just ignore it. It's not important. That's not going to be contributing a lot to the disease. As their urine output gets over a liter up to about three liters, you need to start accounting for that urine and you can just use half the urine volume at that low volume. Once you're going beyond three liters, I would just take all of that urine volume. So for this case, making six liters. So for the first liter, we're going to ignore it. For the next two liters, we'll take half. So that's one liter. And for the three liters through six liters is three. So that's going to be four liters of water that you need to account for. Does that equation make sense? What I just laid out? Yeah. So this is in addition to, in addition to what we, what we calculated as the free water deficit. There's the free water deficit is what I call uh, yesterday. That's what happened up to now, and that's how far we are behind. Right. Then we got to account for how much water they're going to lose today. Mm -hmm. And that we're just going to be looking at their urine output. And you can go through the calculation, or you can just say, hey, I'm going to ignore the first liter. For the second and third liter, I'm going to take half of that volume. And if they only have three liters, that's one liter there, and you're done. Mm -hmm. For any liter above three, I'm going to take all of it. Yeah. Right. Okay. So in this case, we get one liter for the first three liters, mm -hmm. and we get three liters for the next three liters. You add them together, you get four liters. Uh, Hannah gave us a urine sodium of 32 and a urine potassium of 15. Add that together, we get 47. Divide that by 168. Take one minus that. <laughs> multiply that by six, and you get 4.3. So, so you were the, very close with the, yeah. Well, yeah. So the rough calculation is pretty good. And the, uh, but if you want to do the precise calculation, if you have the numbers available, you can do the precise calculation. I do not. I do not want to do yeah. it. <laughs> I love, I love the, uh, I love the other method that you described. It, 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 so basically you're going to take the 2.3 liter deficit and then about this other four liters we expect. Add that on. Yeah. Yeah. So when and 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 now you can see how different it is. The calculations only comes out to 2.3 liters if you don't include urine losses. If you include the urine losses, it's now 6.7 by the full calculation and 6.3 with the partial yeah. calculation. It's a hugely different number. And this is serious right? enough that you would have a Foley in this patient it, like someone with the sodium in the one high 150s or 160s, would you have a Foley in them so you get really accurate urine so that you can do this calculation? Here's what I'd say. I'd say if you, patients in the ICU with altered mental status and they're making six liters of urine a day, your nurses are really going to appreciate you having a Foley in the patient. <laughs> 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 right? You're, you're cleaning that bed up all the time otherwise. Right. Okay. Right? I mean, I mean, this patient's going to be sitting in urine. Like you need you need this for hygiene aspect. And I don't care if it's a condom catheter. Uh, you're going to need something. It's either that or you like pages. So I wanted to ask about this because this comes up. I mean, what if this patient, you, what if you thought this patient was hypovolemic as well? Are you running a separate IV with saline to, to beef up their volume as well? 
Yeah. And I think that, and I think that's the right way to solve this problem is that you're going to run one IV to correct the osmolality and you're going to run one IV to correct the volume deficit. And in fact, in this case, Hannah mentioned this patient's on LR, I think at 125 an hour. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, and the antibiotics. And they're getting a liter of antibiotics. I don't know what antibiotic we're giving. I think we're maybe treating them for syphilis or something. <laughs> I think for asymptomatic <laughs> bacteria, we don't really know. <laughs> oh, dude, we are not giving IV antibiotics for asymptomatic bacteria. <laughs> I, I know who listens to this podcast. That's not happening here. One of the issues that always comes up is we do this calculation. It's uh, 6.7 liters or 280 ml per hour of free water. And so, first of all, if you write 280 ml per hour of D5W, you're going to get into trouble with just the patient, right? They're also getting 125 cc's an hour of LR. Like, this is just a ton of volume. Um, so, this is why we like using the GI tract if possible. This is a real compelling reason that let's cut an NG tube down, right? You know, and we, let's give at least half of this or maybe two thirds of this volume enterally, right? 200 cc's an hour is, uh, that's six ounces. We're not talking about a massive amount of fluid when you're thinking about the enteral tract, but through an IV, it ends up being that's, that's a, that's, a, that's a, a notable amount. Um, all right. And then oftentimes these patients are intubated or they have a history of heart failure. Maybe the reason that you have hypernatremia is you've been pushing the loop diuretics because they have heart failure. And, uh, and now, you come in and you say, well, I need to give a, a 200 an hour of D5W and cardiology is like, no, you're not. You know, one of the things to remember is that only 10% of this volume is going to remain in the plasma. 90% of this is going to be going to the interstitium and into the, and actually two thirds of it actually goes into the intracellular compartment completely disappears. And so it's important to remind cardiology that, yeah, this is volume and it's going to be counted on the eyes and nose, but it's not saline. We're not giving this something that's going to really expand the extracellular compartment. Very modest event, modest increase to the extracellular compartment. Sometimes you can convince cardiology. Sometimes you can't. I think this is, I think this is also why there's been a couple studies. Tony Brew had sent these out on Twitter probably a year or so ago now where the, the fluid restricting patients with heart failure exacerbation, like, you know, people, people have these signs, fluid restrict one liter of, of free water. Mm. I think it do- doesn't make sense and it doesn't pan out when you study it. I don't know what you think there, Joel, but. Well, I think it's important to, what are you trying to do with that fluid restriction? Make yourself feel better. But it's not the volume, right? That's, you know, it's not trying to match up the eyes and nose. You're trying to prevent hyponatremia, which these heart failure patients are susceptible to. And right. I think that's a laudable goal. Okay. But so, right. For if you're, but remember, that's what you're trying to treat is the hyponatremia. But most of them, like Don't most of the, that. that's not the, that's not what it's being used for. I agree. Like if the sodium sub 130 and, you know, you don't have another reason for it. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, uh, um, uh, I, I want to follow up and see that Tony Brew tweetorial. That's excellent. Work. <laughs> it's right up my alley. Well, speaking of tweetorials, um, so let's say, okay, the sodium, you know, we called in the salt whisper. You kind of helped us see that we needed to account for the urine losses. So now the patient's sodium goes from 168 to 150 in a day. Should we panic and start, you know, administering hypertonic saline to get us back to this 12 millimoles per day or what do we do? Right. So, okay. So this is the, the freak out here is that we have a target 
of one twelfth, or give me a, a change of twelve in twenty four hours, and we ended up going eighteen in twenty four hours. And if we were raising the sodium in a patient with chronic hyponatremia, we would immediately say, "Hey, we need to relower because we went too fast and we're at risk of central pontymyelinolysis." So the question is, do you have a symmetric risk from rapid correction? of hypernatremia, right? And if you think about uh, developing acute hyponatremia where you get a sudden drop in sodium from drinking too much water, those patients can get cerebral edema, right? And we have patients that run marathons and get water intoxication and they have a seizure and they die. Like it is not a minor consideration. So the question is, well, if you you know, if we know going from 140 to 120 acutely can cause a seizure and patients can die, what about going from 170 to 150? Do they have the same risk? And the answer is no. They don't have the same risk. Now, the, it's a logical consideration. And in fact, if you're an infant, there is data that rapid correction of sodium in infants does predispose to seizures. Okay, that's an important thing. But in adults, there is not a single credible case report ever of an adult developing cerebral edema from rapid correction of hypernatremia. Not one case report. Yeah. Um, and, and there's been a couple of, uh, uh, retrospective reviews where they have looked at correction of hypernatremia, you know, a thousand patients that have had correction of hypernatremia. What are the neurologic outcomes of people that get slow correction versus patients that get rapid correction? Correction that is beyond, faster than recommended guidelines. And the neurologic outcomes are the same. And even in those comprehensive reviews, not a single case of cerebral edema. And so my sense is, hey, we want to be cautious. Let's target 12 because there's a mechanistic reason why that may going faster may be problematic. But in no way do I want to start re-raising the sodium with hypertonic saline if we go too fast. I just don't care that much. Okay. And usually the problem is you go too slow, that you try to correct it and it doesn't get any better. There's a C. Jason article that came out this past spring. Yep. May, May 2019 looks at critically ill patients and rapid uh, correction of hypernatremia, no increased risk of mortality, um, neurological outcomes. Realistically, I can't find a lot of hard. I mean, I, I, I looked on PubMed just thinking maybe I could find something. There's nothing. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. So uh, that's actually that's actually a great article. We covered it in FJC. We discussed it in Freely Filtered. Um, and uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if you heard that I have a podcast. Uh, I heard that so, episode. That was that was part of my prep for this, Joel. Uh, excellent. So. <laughs> uh, there's an editorial. Uh, that was published with that written by uh, Richard Stearns, who uh, he's the, one of the editors of up to date on the electrolyte section, uh, uh, a author of the hyponatremia guidelines, the U S guidelines on hyponatremia. I mean, he really is uh, a legend when it comes to sodium and he specifically states there has never been a case, a convincing case. His words were a convincing case report of cerebral edema from rapid correction of hypernatremia. And I, I just absolutely believe him. And he really points out that the idea that we want this kind of symmetric risk, we want hypernatremia to be like hyponatremia. And he's like, eh, it's just not. Sorry. It's the opposite, I heard. Yeah. It's the opposite. That's right. With With that in mind, is it, do you check once a day? Do you check... Q, Q12, I mean, rather than Q4, you know? 
I think that's exactly where you should go. Like we need to, we need to recognize that we're not dealing with a critical illness. Like we worried about with hyponatremia, we're not going to be adjusting these things hour by hour. So let's give the nurses a break. Let's give the patient a break and let's just check this Q12 or Q24, I think is totally appropriate. Yeah. I, I think the textbooks are still behind in this for sure. Like, yeah, they are definitely. Yeah. Oh, that's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily, there's a tutorial that we'll link to in the show notes that actually walks it walks through all of it, and it even has a, a GIF. So we'll go ahead and link to that in the show notes. Yeah, I think we should start to to wrap up here. Hannah, take us home. All right, we just had a couple kind of fast facts questions that we wanted to ask you about, sort of some special scenarios in hypernatremia. So the first one was this whole question of thiazides versus acetazolamide for nephrogenic DI. What's kind of the the latest on that. Okay. So uh, if nephrogenic DI is not due to these electrolyte abnormalities, so we talked about hypokalemia and hypercalcemia is causing a reversible nephrogenic DI, throw an osmotic diuresis and loop diuretics on there. Those are easy to correct, right? If the loop diuretic is the problem, stop the loop diuretic, fix the calcium. But there are patients with congenital nephrogenic DI, and there's patients with long-term exposure to lithium developing nephrogenic diabetes insipidus as a consequence of this. These are really difficult cases to manage. And one of the conventional therapies has been giving patients uh, a thiazide-type diuretic. And the idea there is you induce a bit of volume depletion and they get increased fluid reabsorption in other aspects of the, in the, excuse me, in the ADH independent aspects of the nephron. So they'll get a decrease in GFR. They'll get increased reabsorption in the proximal tubule. And so you can minimize their urine output distally. And that's been the kind of the dogma. And then there was some animal studies where they, um, they induced lithium induced, uh, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus. And they had a knockout mouse that was missing the sodium chloride co-transporter. So they were congenitally unable to respond to thiazide diuretics. And the thiazide still worked. And it caused a lot of head scratching. And then uh, they tried acetazolamide on those. And the rats had a dramatic reduction in urine output. And one of the things about thiazides is they do have a bit of a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor activity. And the thought is, is that focusing on the proximal tubule, uh, where acetazolamide is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor, works in the proximal tubule, ends up being a relatively weak diuretic. It actually was is very potent at reducing this lithium-induced increased urine output, this DI. And um, after this animal studies, there was a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine uh, where they demonstrated it in a patient and it was a dramatic, it was like a light switch, how fast and how responsive their urine output was to the acetazolamide. You know, eight, 12 liters, start the acetazolamide, goes down to like two or three liters, stop the acetazolamide, goes right back up to eight to 12 liters. You know, they could just, they could turn it on and turn it off. And I've tried it in a few patients and I've been really impressed with how effective it is. I think this is a, a much better therapy than the thiazides are. There, there was a patient kicking around Cashlack in the past year or two, and she had schizoaffective disorder. Lithium had caused nephrogenic DI, and she was. It was very hard to get her to drink because you know there she was she was basically living in an inpatient psych, and they would consult us as medicine and be like, "Help us out. She's not drinking." 
So she'd eventually get readmitted, then they're tying her to the bed, which doesn't make sense because, you know, she won't drink water. So then they're they're giving her water and she's on thiazide diuretics and uh, they're trying to mess around with the Millerite. I wonder if this would be something that would have worked for her, this acetazolamide. It wasn't it wasn't brought up. It wasn't something that I don't think it's like widespread knowledge, but it was it was like a really difficult case. Like you felt even on the thiazide diuretic twice a day and given given the IV fluids and stuff, like you couldn't keep someone on IV fluids for the rest of their life. So it was a big problem. Yeah, the thing to remember with the, the thiazides is you want to induce volume deficiency. So part of the game is you need to put the, also have them a little sodium restricted. You can't ha- give them free access to salty foods that will restore their volume, right? You're trying to induce a little right. bit of pre-renal azotemia, if you will. Um, but the acetazolamide, like I said, I would absolutely, if I encounter that patient again, I'd give them a, a, a shot of acetazolamide and see how well it worked. And and that's the mechanism there. Is it well understood? Is it is it worth getting into, or is it a little bit too high level for for our purposes? So so you know, anytime you read in a textbook, uh, the explanation for this is beyond the scope of this text. That's <laughs> you know, that's just code for the author going. I have no idea what's going on here. <laughs> and so we're just going to go with yeah, you know that that's just uh, beyond the scope of this podcast. Uh. <laughs> okay. Hannah, anything else before we get take-home points, or do you want to jump to take-home points? Let's do some take-home points. Okay. Take-home point for number one for hypernatremia, when you see the patient, figure out why they're not drinking water and correct that. Okay. Second one, look for things that are going to predispose that. What kind of loss of water do they have from the body? Is it renal, like DI, or diuretics, um, or is it extra-renal, diarrhea, uh, insensible losses through the skin, high fevers, all those can predispose. Don't forget the possibility of uh, salt intoxication, soy sauce ingestion, sodium bicarbonate use in a code situation, hypertonic saline for whatever, what have you. When it comes to uh, therapy for hypernatremia, calculate the fluid deficit. The calculators are freely available, but don't forget the ongoing losses. So the ongoing losses, take a look at it. If their patient is oliguric, you don't need to worry about it. But the more urine they make, the more important it is to watch it. All right. And did you have anything that you wanted to plug? No, I, I think just the uh, the freely filtered podcast. If you're if you're interested in this type of stuff and you kind of like the stuff that we do at the at the Twitter Journal Club NFJC, uh, this is kind of a director's cut of NFJC where you get. Uh, <laughs> We've got a we've got a really good we got a really good uh, crew of uh, five people. We have uh, Jenny Lin, who's a basic scientist at Northwestern University. We have Samira Farouk, who's a transplant nephrologist at Sinai in New York City. We have Swap Mel Hiramath, who's a uh, epidemiologist in Ottawa. Uh, we have uh, uh, Matt Sparks, who's a uh, basic scientist, a vascular blood pressure researcher, vascular researcher. Uh, at Duke and uh, and myself, and we kind of hash through these uh, these studies and bring up interesting uh, aspects, including uh, a deep dive in the nature of all the placebos and all the placebo controlled trials. Uh, we go we go deep into the minutia. We really it's a it's a it's a long tail podcast, as we like to say. So, Joel, I uh, can't thank you enough. As always, this was uh, this one. I, I did, you know, I thought this was a fairly, I mean, you said it's simple, but it is still, you know, it's not that easy, uh, maybe for a nephrologist, but it's, it, I, I do like the fact that you don't have math. to worry about pseudo, 
Yeah, there's a lot of math, but you simplified it. I mean, like the and and there's a, there's a calculator for the free water deficit, and then you simplified the electrolyte free water clearance. And and there's there are calculators for the free water clearance. You'll find them also, and that's what they're called too. Electrolyte. Yeah. It's called electrolyte free water clearance, and it'll guide you through everything. You got to plug in there. It's not that difficult. This has been another episode of the Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Insert yummy here. (laughs) (laughs) Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get our delicious weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, not Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Hannah R. Abrams, and Hello. to our social media team, again, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chewy Man Jew on <laughs> Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham. <laughs> Uh, until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. I've been Hannah Rebecca Abrams. <laughs> and there's no Paul Williams. So. Oh, no. Thank you and good night. Good night. Good night.